0: Welcome to Spot on Safety, the program designed for safety professionals. Spot on Safety is brought to you by iWorkWise, providing safety knowledge when you need it. For more information about iWorkWise, go to iWorkWise.com. Welcome to Spot on Safety, Episode 28, Flammable and Combustible Liquids, with your hosts, Amy Does and Dan Smiley. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. I'm excited to jump into today's podcast. Today's topic is flammable and combustible liquids. This is a topic that we see causing problems in households and in industry. We see it in the news every single day. We all have flammable and combustible liquids in our homes. We use uh, barbecues. We have cleaning solvents under the sink. Uh, We have gasoline in the garage for our lawnmowers and our leaf blowers. I mean, this stuff is just everywhere, and it has inherent dangers that people may or may not really be aware of. I mean, they know it burns. They know that there are some hazards that are surrounding it, but how to store it, what to look out for, why it causes a problem. These things tend to be a mystery for some, and I thought we would address that today.
1: Well, that sounds pretty good. You know, this, just like you pointed out, these things are ubiquitous and, uh, you know, they're they're everywhere. And it's one of those topics that I've always wished was covered in high school, like ladders. Um, This is another safety topic where it's not just in the workplace we run into these things, and and uh, it's it's an area where the more you know, the more common sense you have. So it's really great to be able to talk about it. These th- this stuff isn't isn't rocket science, in some ways, but uh, it's really cool how how uh, things work and what makes things flammable and combustible, and uh, we we work around this stuff every day, so it's useful information.
0: Well, it's it's dangerous. We all know that, but for. People in the workplace, it also is regulated by OSHA in a number of places. Can you walk through that for us?
1: Yeah, there's some regulations in general industry, uh, in the General Industry Standards 1910 that talk about uh, handling and uh, storage of flammable liquids, and for ships, uh, we have a lot of listeners who work with ships and uninspected vessels. Um, there are also uh, some. Uh, pretty good little list of uh, rules about it in the 1915 standards.
0: Let's talk about some definitions so that we're all singing off the same sheet of music. Since the title of the podcast is Flammable and Combustible Liquids, let's talk about combustible. What is a combustible liquid?
1: Well, combustible liquids are liquids that burn real well, but they have to be heated to get them started. So things like diesel fuel, that is probably a real common one people, people run into. Um, diesel will burn just like gasoline, but you have to heat it up a little bit to get it going. Um, and hand-in-hand hand with the definition of combustible liquids, we have flammable liquids. So flammable liquids are liquids that are ready to go um, at any kind of normal temperature range. They're sending off enough vapors to ignite, and as long as they um, send, out, you have enough of that fuel mixed in with air and every material has its own flammable range... But you get a little bit airborne, and uh, they're, they're ripe and ready to go um, right from the get-go. You don't have to warm them up at all.
0: So you mentioned flammable range. Can you give us a brief uh, definition of flammable range?
1: Well, it's basically the concentration of the flammable vapor in air that will produce fire or an explosion when you have an ignition source. So every material kind of have has its own personality and it has its own flammable range. So it takes a different concentration in order to burn really, really perfectly. And you can use a, a gasoline combustion engine as an example. If you don't have enough fuel, it's too lean and your car doesn't run very well. Where if you have too much fuel in your carburetor, um, it's too rich and your and your car doesn't run that well. But there's a sweet spot in the middle and that's right in that – in that uh, sweet spot of the gasoline's flammable range. Um, so between it, you'll still get your car to run, it just won't be smooth. But right in the sweet spot, it'll, it'll run great because that gasoline is burning optimally. So every material has every material that's flammable or combustible has a flammable range, um, not just gasoline. And that's you can find that information in the MSDS sheet.
0: How about flashpoint? What would the definition of that be?
1: Flashpoint. When you look at this on an MSDS, um, it's the temperature at which that liquid gives off enough vapor to form an ignitable mixture. So, if a material's flashpoint is minus 28 degrees, it means in normal situations, unless you're in the Arctic Circle or somewhere, um, or in in uh, Minnesota or something, uh, that gas that that material is going to be giving off enough vapor to burn. Um, if its flashpoint is 80 degrees, it has to be a pretty hot day uh, before it gives off enough vapor to uh, get to a, a flammable range.
0: You mentioned the Arctic that, that, that reminds me of a story that I heard way back in a in a Haswapper class. Years and years ago, the instructor was talking about the f- flash point of gasoline, which is minus 45 degrees. And to anybody it's mine, gasoline will just burn anywhere on the planet. But as it turns out, there was a medical emergency at the U.S. research station in Antarctica where they needed to fly a plane down to medevac out a person. I think it was appendicitis, but I don't recall exactly. And it's the dead of winter. It's minus minus, you know, 80 degrees Fahrenheit down there, and they lined the runway with 55-gallon drums filled with gasoline and went to light it so the plane could land. And, of course, what happened? It wouldn't light because it's below its flashpoint, <laughs> right. and they ended up out there with, with propane torches heating up the gasoline in the drum so they could get it above its flashpoint so that it would ignite and light the runway. I mean, nowhere else in the world would, would that happen.
1: Well, that's interesting, because in normal temperatures, that's what you'd have to do with diesel in order to get it ignited. So, you know, every material has its own flashpoint and its own flammable range. And, you know, when you know those numbers and you can think about it uh, productively, that that, um, you can really understand what that material is going to do and what its personality or what its properties are. So a lot of times people look on MSDSs and, you know, it gives you instructions like firefighting or, you know, what kind of PPE to wear, perhaps, Um, but... These, these properties, when you start knowing what these numbers mean, it becomes pretty fascinating.
0: So with a few of those definitions out of the way, uh, I'm storing flammable materials in my workplace. What, what action is required? What is it that I need to do?
1: Well, the, the main thing is, is you want to store those things away from ignition sources, right? We have the fire triangle, it takes fuel, it takes oxygen, and it takes a spark or heat in order for something to burn. So we have enough oxygen and normal air for things to burn. So really, um, a lot of the safety rules really center around uh, basically keeping your ignition sources and your flammable and combustible materials separated. So we want to do that whether they're in storage or whether we're using them or if we're in a confined space, uh, for instance. We have to be really careful about ignition sources around these things. And so when you go to the gas pump, it says no smoking, right?
0: Last I checked.
1: Yeah. So most people have that one down. Maybe you don't want to smoke at the gas station. The other people uh, might give you a hard time about that. Basically, you don't want to do that when you're filling up your your lawnmower either, or have a super hot lawnmower with a hot engine on it um, that could ignite uh, your gasoline vapors. One one thing that's important I think to note about all flammable and combustible liquids is it's the vapors that burn, not the liquids itself. Liquids don't burn, um, but they give off enough vapor if they're above their flash point to form an ignitable mixture, and then. They, they, the vapors burn quite well. So basically, when you're storing these things, keep them the heck away from ignition sources and keep them tightly closed. Keep the containers tightly closed whenever they're not in use. Um, that, those two things right there really help to uh, make sure you don't have a fire or some kind of accident involving these materials.
0: We're talking about storage. I've seen these uh, big yellow storage cabinets. Is that a requirement by OSHA? Do I need to keep all flammable and combustible materials that aren't, like, in the gas tank in the car inside a flammable storage locker?
1: Yeah, there are some rules in the OSHA general industry standards about how you need to store your combustibles and flammables. And basically, it, it isn't a very simple answer. It 's not just you have any flammables at all, you need to have a cabinet. It really depends on how flammable things are so OSHA basically um, characterizes it is if you have twenty five gallons or more of class one A liquids in containers, you, they need to be in a cabinet. But the reality is is most people don 't have class one a s An example of a class one A would be like pentane it would be It would be kind of hard in a normal workplace to have more than twenty five gallons of pentane or ether, for instance. So that doesn't apply to most people, but the number that does is they require a storage cabinet if you have 120 gallons of class 1B, 1C, class two or class three liquids. So if, if we look at examples of what those things might be, a 1B is like acetone or gasoline, um, a 1C would be something like turpentine Uh, A class two would be mineral spirits or kerosene. Um, A class three, you'd be getting more into like diesel or hydraulic oil. So a lot of businesses uh, have these kind of things. And so generally, if you have more than 120 gallons of, of flammable and combustible liquids in containers, they should be in a storage cabinet. There's some other exceptions where they can be stored outside or in an outside storage area, or they have some rules for inside storage rooms. But that's really where you need the cabinet. So that's 120 gallons is a lot of flammables for a lot of a lot of flammables and combustibles for a lot of businesses. So um, it might be that they never have to have a, a flammable cabinet. But the flammable cabinet does a couple things for you. I was thinking about getting one for my basement myself just because it helps keep those ignition sources away from those flammable materials. And if you do have a fire, it stops those containers which will be exploding. Um, from causing further damage. So um, flammable cabinets are a good thing, but the OSHA rules are clear, um, and it's usually 120 gallons.
0: Now that's 120 gallons combined, right? If I had 5 gallons of gasoline and 30 gallons of turpentine and on and on and on, it's a it's a total.
1: Yeah, it's a total.
0: Sure. Well, it makes good of sense to put a flammable cabinet in the basement. I probably have, oh, I'll bet I have 15 gallons of paint not full gallon containers but you know all kinds of different paint half of that is is uh not a big deal it's all it's acrylic but a lot of it's uh, oil based for exterior painting i have turpentine i have some gasoline and although it doesn't even come close to 120 gallons if you caught three gallons of gasoline on fire in the basement you'd probably say goodbye to your house
1: oh yeah and you probably have other things too like map gas or propane for soldering um, you know you might have uh, WD-40 or which isn't too too terribly ignitable but uh, you could have other spray cans too maybe uh, engine starting fluid um, lots of you know I end up with lots of spray cans I try to never buy stuff and I still end up with a, with a bunch of them and they do become little bombs uh, if they're involved in a fire so they'd certainly feed the flames uh, in your house um, should you ever run into that situation so you don't really need that. And those cabinets are kind of expensive, you know, it's kind of a deterrent, but they're, they have to be made a certain way. Um, you, they're not just plain old metal cabinets. They'll have a uh, airspace in the bottom. They'll be double walled in certain situations, or at least, uh, parts of it might be, they have a three point locking mechanism that has to be functional, uh, on the front. You know, there's some rules about them. And it doesn't make them that cheap and easy to construct. So they always, they always run into some money, but, uh, but probably a good idea. And, and especially, you know, I, I run into shops or maybe auto places uh, where they're working on vehicles or certainly in ship repair situations where you're welding. So you're welding in the shop and you have all these little spray cans everywhere. Um, you know, you're getting your ignition sources a little close to your flammable sometimes.
0: mean, now that we've covered storage. We know what to do to keep it away from ignition sources and protect ourselves when it's not in use. What about when it is in use? What do we need to do to make sure we're using flammable and combustible liquids safely?
1: Well, we've already talked about um, keeping them closed when they're not in direct use. Like if you're not dispensing the material, keep it closed because vapors could still be lifting off from those containers and and feed uh, a fire or something or, or find an ignition source. So we want to keep... Keep them closed when we're not actually using them. But the main thing with use is ventilation. Ventilate, ventilate, ventilate. Um, we want to avoid that that flammable range. So if you can keep the concentration in air low by having good maybe uh, natural wind, you know, mixing. So you're you're doing you're using the materials outside um, or forced air ventilation. You know, blowing fresh air into the area to keep that keep that diluted, um, ventilation is going to be a key because uh, we we really want to keep that flammable range low. We want to keep that material uh, concentration low. So I can't really say enough about ventilation. So we're going to avoid ignition sources, not have a cigarette hanging out of our mouth while we're dispensing our gasoline. We're going to ventilate the heck out of it and We're going to keep those containers closed so we can't have a fire flashback to the container um, in our area. So another good thing about ventilation is it keeps the uh, health hazards down, too. A lot of these flammable and combustible liquids also cause health problems. Um, Maybe even long-term things like benzene causes cancer. Um, So there's there's, uh, a lot of good things to say about ventilation. Another thing is you might end up with oily rags. Um, or a rag soaked in paint or solvent, um, those things can spontaneously ignite. And so in a workplace, you have to keep those in covered metal containers and you have to take them out regularly. Um, I had a rag ignite uh, in my garbage can that had a little bit of uh, teak oil on it. So um, I've seen it happen firsthand and, and seen it in the workplace as well. Um, so you want to keep those those oil-soaked rags in covered metal containers or get them the heck out of your, your area. So those are all things you can kind of do to minimize the um, hazards.
0: Yeah, I remember you, we talked some time ago about a, a, a study, I think it was OSHA that did it, but maybe you can correct me, that showed that in confined space accidents, it, for the most part, if... Ventilation had taken place, and this isn't necessarily just combustible or flammable materials, but lack of oxygen and other things too. If they had just ventilated, most, if not all, of the confined space accidents would have been prevented.
1: Yeah, you bet. You know, it was a NIOSH study they did in a 10 year period, and the accidents that occurred in that 10 year period, that was true. They didn't do any, uh, they didn't use any detectors. Um, you know, on ships we have we have shipyard competent persons who who wander around with uh, LEL meters, and you can see where something's at in its its flammable range with one of those. I mean, we wouldn't have those at home, um, but in the NIOSH study, 100% of the people who died in those incidents did not do any monitoring and did not do any ventilation at all.
0: Yeah, so if they had just ventilated, and this goes for, for potential accidents in the home too, uh, if you make sure you ventilate chances are, without knowing anything else, you're going to do a lot to alleviate risk.
1: Oh yeah so it, keeping ignition sources away and ventilating are probably the keys um, to trying to stay safe with with uh, flammable liquids.
0: You know, it's funny because the more people know about this, the less they seem to care. I remember not that many years ago watching a tankerman on a a gasoline barge walking up the the side of the barge smoking a cigarette.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) You you don't think of it. You know, there's another sneaky one we haven't mentioned yet, Dan, which is static electricity. I have several videos of uh, fire starting at gas stations. And because gas stations have so many safeties built in, really over time they've minimized the dumb stuff that we can do there. Um, They've banned the smoking. They have... Uh, bonding and grounding built into their nozzles and these safety features and ways to minimize vapor production, but yet it, it still happens. So there are probably eight or 9,000 incidents a year at gas stations. Um, you don't hear about them. There's a lot more gas stations in the U.S. than that, um, so it doesn't happen every day in your own backyard, but it happens. Well, what about um, when you're filling
0: containers when you're not at something like a gas station? I mean, the gas station's Systems are bonded and grounded, but uh, systems in my workplace maybe aren't.
1: Yeah, the uh, the rule for it is is if you have anything that falls into a class one uh, category, you're supposed to bond and ground the containers when you're dispensing those materials. So examples of those things that we'd probably run into would be like acetone or gasoline. Um, Those would be things, and I'm sure that you and I have both dispensed gasoline in our workplaces without bonding or grounding the container. But you can get a buildup of static electricity just from pouring the fluid from one container to another that could ignite the vapors. So in the workplace, the OSHA rule is if it falls into a class one category, and you can see that on the MSDS for every material you have, what category it's in, um, that container is supposed to be grounded, so you have to have a continuous ground um, wire or something going from the container to the ground or have a, one of the containers sit, sitting on the ground directly. Um, and you have have a bonding wire between the two containers, which should be metal, um, to make sure that you're dissipating on the static electricity to ground
0: yeah I can neither confirm nor deny that I've ever poured liquids into unbonded or grounded containers,
1: yeah, so it you know it, me too, but
0: <laughs> i'm not if I did, I'm not admitting it on this podcast
1: yeah and, and uh, yeah, we won't talk about that anymore, but basically, you know we've all gotten away with stuff a lot um but that, uh one of the one of the classic examples, and along with the no smoking warning label at the gas station there's probably one that says you know if you 're filling a portable container, put it on the ground don't fill it in the back of your pickup truck, um especially if you have a plastic bed liner by the way um and I have a few videos of of somebody catching on fire by doing that, so you know we 're saved most of the time because our containers one of the containers is on the ground, perhaps. Um, where we're touching a container to the other just so we don't spill. Um, But it happens. uh, And the hotter day it is, the easier it is to happen because the warmer these materials get, the more they vaporize. And the vapor is what ignites. And so you have more of it at a higher concentration in hotter climates and during hotter weather and in hotter spaces. So... You know we might get away with it because we're doing it in the winter or maybe it's seventy degrees in the Seattle summer or something, or we're, doing, we're in Alaska, but um, you're in Texas in the summer, you have a greater risk of having a problem.
0: I think now they're even putting up placards at the gas station telling you not to get in and out of your car while you're you're fueling, and that's not because they don't want you to leave the pump alone. it's because of the static electricity that can be generated as you slide in and out of the car over
1: the synthetic seats. Oh, and there's a there's a good video of that on YouTube, uh, where a girl gets into her car and out again, and she has cloth seats and is wearing a nice acrylic sweater or something or wool sweater, and she doesn't touch anything, and goes back and touches that gasoline nozzle, and it ignites right right there, so. That That's a good one. Yeah. One thing you see sometimes is don't use your cell phone at the gas station, um, which might be just obnoxious because other people want you to concentrate so you can make the line go faster. But I don't know of one uh, instance where a cell phone has ignited uh, gasoline vapors at a gas station. But, you know, there there are a lot of other electronics, maybe with more spark that you might have closer to that gas nozzle. I don't know. But But the main things that the warning labels you see across all the gas stations are fuel those portable containers on the ground um, and don't smoke.
0: That covers some of the use and storage uh, considerations. (laughs) Is there training required by OSHA that covers flammable and combustible liquids in their use?
1: You know, not specifically. No, there there sure isn't. Um, But again, it becomes really hard to handle materials properly if you don't know how. So there's some inherent uh, implication. Maybe there should be a little bit of training. But there's no written documentation or anything formal that's required.
0: Well, that seems like a pretty good synopsis of the topic. I would mention that we did cover in Episode 9 that addressed lower explosive limit, some of these topics in a little greater detail. And those who want to have a, a little more meat in the topic of Flashpoint and Lower Explosive Limit, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to Episode 9.
1: Sounds good, Dan. Thanks for another great podcast. Thank you, Amy.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Spot on Safety. If you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, you can email us. The address is SpotOnSafety at iWorkWise.com